Welcome to another episode of CBH. I'm Alex Grand, and I'm here with my trusty co-host and psychically enhanced partner here, Jim Thompson. Jim, how are you doing today? I'm enhanced. That's what I am. <laughs> well, Jim is psychic because I told him recently that my wife is carrying a child. And what's interesting is he responded by saying, well, I actually had that running around in my head these past few weeks, which is really interesting, which I think confirms that Jim and I do have a psychic bond. I don't know. What do you think about that, Jim? I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> there <laughs> that, you go. That, that's, that's all that, I got. That's proof, folks. That's proof. So today we're going to talk about the years 1974 and 1975, and we're going to be focusing on the rise and fall of Atlas Seaboard Comics. In the first section, we're going to talk about the players and the business plan. Secondly, we'll look at the talent and the actual comics. Jim, as always, wants to talk about genre. The third section, we'll look into why it all failed. And finally, we'll have a few words over its legacy, if there is one. So, Jim, what's new? What's been going on lately, man? You know, Alex, I was ready for this, and I have no answer for you at all. Like, the only thing I could say is it's going to be a crazy month, and so my brain is kind of shutting down and anticipating for that because there's right. a lot of comic things in March. Comic Fest is coming up in San Diego. I'm going to try to go to that in like a week or so. And then we have, I'm going to go to Emerald Con for the first time. My wife is presenting a paper at a cinema conference, academic conference that same weekend. So, and then somebody invited me to be on a panel at Emerald Con. So it was just too tempting to go. So I'm going to be there and hope to see a lot of friends and that should be exciting. And then WonderCon is at the end of the month. I'm doing a paper presentation that day or one of those days. I don't even know when. So it's a lot of comic stuff in between juggling the other jobs that I have. What about you? Well, recently this film crew came by. They're making a Stan Lee documentary. They've interviewed some pretty interesting people so far, and they chose to interview me. And we sat down for an hour and talked about the life and legacy of Stan Lee. So everybody stay tuned. There will be a link presented in the comic book historian Facebook group once that's ready to go. But I found that to be a really interesting experience. It felt like a deposition a little bit. I don't know if you know about depositions, Jim. I'm sure you've heard of those. Have you ever been deposed? Yeah, a couple times. I was never a defendant, and they're pretty interesting. I like the way lawyers think, so I tend to do pretty well at them for some reason. Oh, I have blown up so many depositions, like where my client was blowing it, saying uh -huh. things like, well, yes, I've taught my son the word bitch, but I don't think that's a problem, is it? You know, And then I have to blow up the deposition so that it doesn't go... <laughs> Any farther than that. Yes, yes. Motion to strike the non-responsive part from the record, please. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Well, let's get started. So part one. You're the business guy, so I'm just going to ask you questions and you can kind of answer. So the first question is, who exactly, for the people who don't know, who exactly is Martin Goodman, who is Jeff Rovin, and who is Larry Lieber? Is this a deposition, Jim? It's this feeling it's going to be a deposit. This is it. <laughs> this is starting to feel like a deposition. Okay. Martin Goodman has a long history going back to the 1930s. You know, he did work with Hugo Gerns back and eventually started his own pulp magazine line and then eventually Marvel Comics in 1939. He sold Marvel Comics to Perfect Film and Chemical in 1968. And four years later in 1972, he left Marvel with the expectation that his son, Chip Goodman, was supposed to be the next publisher. And instead, the Cadence executives, 
Perfect Film and Chemical was also called Cadence. They felt that Stan Lee was more the lifeline to the future success of the company and not Chip Goodman. And so they made Stan the publisher. Roy Thomas replaced him as editor-in-chief, and Chip lost his job. Chip Goodman, however, was not to be pushed aside if his father had anything to do about it. So Martin Goodman, who started Marvel Comics, then returns with a vengeance in 1974, starting a whole new line of comics called Seaboard Periodicals, also branded as Atlas Comics, with his son Chip. And that was roughly toward the end of 1974 in September. Let me ask you a couple of Goodman questions and then go to the next person, because I'm curious. My understanding is that Martin Goodman himself was at times none too kind to his son, Chip, that he demeaned him or mocked him Uh in the presence of others when they were all at Marvel. And there became sort of a at least a maybe a fiction, maybe a reality that Chip was a bit of an idiot and his father helped foster that. Is there any truth to that? Well, that's interesting. Truth always depends on who you ask in a question like this. I would say that from the rumblings of people who were there, the discussion was more that Chip didn't have the same sort of business acumen or social graces as his father Martin did. But Chip was the child of Martin who was interested in publishing. So I think he did the best he could. I don't think he had the same kind of raw business talent that his father had or the same talent for connecting with people like the way Stan Lee had. So I think the Cadence executives probably got a sense of that. And speaking of Stan Lee, I have also read that some people, including perhaps Goodman, thought that Stan Lee was actually behind that removal of his son, that Stan was behind the scenes advocating against him. Yes. Yeah, I have. I have read about this that there was a power play involved behind the scene and that Stan Lee knew the writing on the wall and knew that if he acted now, he could make some deals with Cadence to secure his future and also then set the future for the Marvel Comics line. So is it absolutely true that Stan Lee did something dishonest to get rid of Chip? I don't think necessarily dishonest, but I do think that there were power players in motion and Stan Lee likely won that power play, and Chip Goodman lost. And was this part of the motivation for Atlas Seaboard even being created? I know that some people referred to it at the time as Vengeance Incorporated. Yes, because essentially Martin Goodman wanted to make Cadence and Stan Lee pay for getting rid of his son. So yes, this was the motivation to essentially swamp the market with a bunch of his comics and get the Marvel comics off of the newsstands, reduce their sales, and maybe then start up something that his son Chip could take over on. And then let's talk about the editorial staff that was hired by the Goodmans, Jeff Roven and Larry Lieber. Who were those guys? So Jeff Roven was an editor who came over from the Warren magazines. And Jeff Roven was actually what I consider a good figure in all this. He pushed the Goodmans to have better creator conditions like return of original art, royalty payments, higher page rate, and suddenly they had good creators that were interested. And Jim, you're going to later on read a list of the creators that were interested to join that lined up to do comics here. Also, Larry Lieber, who was actually Stan Lee's brother and who co-created characters like Thor and Groot and other people from the early 60s Marvel and scripted a lot of Marvel comics, He came over to essentially edit the black and white magazines 
while Jeff Rovin edited the color comic book line. You know, Jeff Rovin is an interesting guy, and we'll talk about this, but basically Goodman, all he really knew how to do with his 30, 40 years of publishing was, let's copy the competition and flood the market with it. And that's all he ever did. And that's what he wanted to do here. Let's copy Marvel and flood the market with it. And Jeff Rovin wanted to do something more unique and creator-friendly like he was doing over with the Warren magazines. I've read the same thing that you said, but I've also read where on the magazines that that may not even be totally accurate, that Rovin was editing those too, that that was a Lieber story, but it's not actually 100% accurate. I know Lieber was editor on at least five or six of the color comics. So I think that that breakdown is widely reported, but I wonder if it's 100% accurate. I agree with that because when I was going through the Atlas line, I would see Jeff Rovin's name on a bunch of the black and white magazines anyway. And so maybe it wasn't that broken down and maybe they didn't really have enough time to really make it. Maybe that was the goal, but maybe they were just trying to put it all together and then form the order later. But yeah, I agree. When you actually look at the black and white magazines, you'll see Jeff Rovin's name a bunch of times. We're going to talk talent now, and there's a bunch of good talent that Rovin obviously helped to bring aboard, and probably Lieber's name also assisted in that. One clarification also, so people don't get mixed up, Larry Lieber is Stan Lee's brother. Stan Lee is Martin Goodman's nephew. But by marriage, it's like a second cousin through marriage. Because it's confusing, because we all have heard that Stan Lee is Martin Goodman's nephew. I just wanted to clarify, there is no family relation between Larry Lieber and Martin Goodman, that Stan is only related to Goodman through marriage. He's a nephew-in-law. That's true. Also, when you look at Martin Goodman's history over at Marvel, even if they were related through marriage, he would still trust that person more than the average person on the street to manage his stuff. So there is still a feeling of nepotism I think, if anything, Rovin was probably the odd man out over at Atlas Comics. Both in terms of family, but also in terms of philosophy of comics, too. Uh, He was looking for something very different from what Goodman was trying to accomplish. Yes. So, Jim, tell us, who was the line of talent that lined up to work on Atlas Comics? There were so many and are very tangential that are just done through association, like Frank Brunner and Jim Starlin fill in and do a little inking on the side, uncredited, things like that. But the names that were advertised, that were the big names, were Neil Adams doing covers, Ditko, Russ Heath, John Severin, Alex Toth, and Wally Wood are probably the biggest names. Then you had emerging talents like Rich Buckler and Howard Shakin. And then there are the steady ones or ones that I wasn't familiar with, like Ernie Colon, who just knocked my socks off when I saw that first issue of Grim Ghost. So there were all of those guys and so many others. What was weird was they would bring in these talents and then they would have people like Frank Springer and Jack Abel. And Jim Mooney inking these people. And so it was an odd mix. Yeah, I agree. I also enjoyed seeing Walt Simonson's early stuff here and Larry Hama as well, who later worked with G.I. Joe and worked on Wolf. He also wrote the first Planet of the Vampires. But Walt Simonson and Archie Goodwin both worked on Manhunter for DC before, from 73 to 74. So they also worked together on a black and white magazine, Thrilling Adventure Stories 2, 1975. 
And we see some of that early Simonson with utilization of lettering to set up sound effects to emphasize action. It's pretty cool seeing that, especially since we know that he's going to really use that a lot in his later Thor and Orion comics. And I didn't bring up some of the writers, and I I probably should have. You said Goodwin, and that's probably the best. And he worked with Ditko on Destructor, which put it probably ahead of most of the other books. The downside, and this is me giving an opinion, is that although there were Tony Isabella's and Jerry Conway's, and those were mainstream comic writers, probably brought in more in the last few issues. And Gary Friedrich was brought in to basically set things right once they got rid of Roven. So in those early days, Michael Fleischer was brought in to do a lot of the writing. And this is the Fleischer who had written the Spirit or the Spectre for Adventure Comics, where the Spectre was chopping people up like wood and having them eaten by sharks and whatever. Also, basically any book he wrote, it was that sort of sadism. Hex, he later went on to Ghost Rider and turned him into the same thing. His books are cruel and sadistic on some level. And so there was a tone Not of fun, but of sadism in a lot of these first two issues of a lot of these books. Morlock eats a blind girl, and this is supposed to be the hero, but uh, (laughs) he kills her and eats her. (laughs) You you just don't eat blind girls. Right, right. That's mean. That's mean. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's something you would call HR over that, wouldn't you? I would. I would. And it wasn't just him, Brute, which was supposed to be the Hulk, was killing people as soon as they found him or thought him out or whatever happened with Brute. They were killing people a lot. And these were the good guys. And that's all coming from Fleischer. So I think that was very much a bad hire in terms of setting the tone of the entire line of comics to some degree. But what was good about this is that they had a tremendous number of genres going on. And while other comic companies were relying on superheroes, this was also 75. So Marvel had broken out with Conan and was doing other things. DC was trying a whole line of sword and sorcery characters would claw the unconquered and all of those. So there was a lot of that happening around the same time period or right before or after I broke down out of the 20 some books I wanted to kind of go through the diversity of it and look at it because it's really not a superhero company until the third issues come in. And we're going to talk about the change in a few minutes about how crazy shift in some of the series. But you had two war books, Blazing Battle Tales, featuring Sergeant Hawk. This was an anthology book. This is where John Severin had some pencils and inks, and it's beautiful. But there was only one issue. Savage Combat was three issues with Sergeant Stryker's Death Squad, another anthology. And in issue two of that is an Alex Toth story, Chenault Must Die, which should not be missed. There was only one Western, Western action, and that was only one issue. But that one issue had Doug Wildly art in it which anybody that's ever read Rio understands just how rare and how great his artwork was. Hands of the Dragon, illustrated by Jim Craig, who did a lot of work at the end for them. Jim Craig also worked on Master of Kung Fu, so he was kind of a Kung Fu specialist, although he's the one that nobody liked as compared to Mike Zach, Paul Galassi, and Gene Day in terms of Master of Kung Fu. Sword and Sorcery was probably one of their biggest ones in that they had two four-issue comics, which was the most that any of these series ran, and both Wolf, the Larry Hammock, and Iron Jaw, which was Fleischer, so a perfect fit, working with first Sikowski and then with Pablo Marcos, which did memorable Iron Jaw. Right. 
those two both ran for four issues, and there was one issue of a book called Barbarians, which also featured Iron Jaw drawn by Marcos. So yes. that's a pretty heavy investment into those, although Iron Jaw is also sort of science fiction because it is post-apocalyptic and takes place in the future rather than the odd past. There's horror occult books, and this is where it gets tricky because these kind of are like Marvel's Son of Satan and Werewolf by Night in that they yeah. are a sort of superhero books. There's Demon Hunter, the Rich Buckler, David Anthony Kraft book, which we'll talk about later on as well. There's Fright, which is featuring Son of Dracula, which is noteworthy only in that it had Frank Thorne, who did a lot of covers and some interior work. Yeah. At the same time that he was really becoming a breakout star over at Marvel with Red Sonja. Grim Ghost, which I've mentioned before, all three issues done by Colin and with Fleischer doing the first two and most twisted stories. And then Tony Isabella coming in in the third issue. Tales of Evil, which was another anthology. And this is interesting because of Coven, because he's bringing in the Warren people. Jerry Grand Getty. What's that? Roven, yeah. Coven sounds awesome, though, because it's a whole <laughs> it does. Thing. Yeah, so that's right. I'm just going to call him Coven. Um, <laughs> Jerry Granddaddy and Tom Sutton are both brought in for Tales of Evil. So yeah. that just reads exactly like a Warren book yeah, in itself. that's right. That's great. Then there was one teen comedy book that ran for four issues called Vicky, which was looked like Archie, looked like Billy yeah, I saw that. It was basically like Archie, yeah. Yeah, that's probably the only one I didn't buy on the newsstands when these uh -huh. were all out. There were science fiction books, Planet of the Vampires. That's interesting because people incorrectly talk about it as a sort of a ripoff of Planet of the Apes. And that's mm -hmm. completely wrong. That's what, it, what it was, was a ripoff of Omega Man. Yes, of I Am yeah. Legend. I Am Legend I, and Omega Man, which is the same thing. Basically, Rovin wanted to license the I Am Legend book. And Martin Goodman was kind of cheap for that and said, no, let's just copy it so then larry hama wrote the first issue it's actually pretty good reading did you like yeah. planet of the vampire yeah and, well the covers are great covers are great yeah neil adams does some covers there was one where he does a cover for one of them and it shows dracula on the cover but dracula is not in the comic <laughs> and i thought i thought that was hilarious there's a Mario Bava film called Planet of the Vampires that right. I think the title is probably ripping off. But it's important to remember that Omega Man, the movie, was yeah. out around that time. So it was the wear of I Am Legend, but I think it was also playing for Omega with Man, the adaptation. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, because that's very 70s. Yes. Yeah. So there was that. And that happened, I think, at least two or three times where Rovin was trying to get the license properties and Goodman was too cheap to do that because the other show that was a major hit at that point was Kolchak, the Night Stalker. Yeah. Is that any good, Kolchak? I've never seen it. Oh, yeah. Really? That, it's like you just asked me if I like my child. Yes. <laughs> Kolchak, is, Kolchak is awesome. All right, um, I got to check it out. I know it's got a cult following, so all right, that's cool. I'm part of that cult. <laughs> Copy in, not Scientology though. Right, so, right, anyway. right, right, right. <laughs> not right. that there's anything wrong with that, not, folks. Not, not that that there's any. No, any... no, they're good clients. <laughs> so Kolchak was turned into Cougar, which was an adventure one. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Phoenix was also science fiction, and that was the only book that Jeff Rovin was actually the writer on. I don't know right. if you knew that. And that ran for four issues. Then there were the crime books, 
which were Police Action, which ran for three issues that featured Lomax and Luke Malone. And what I didn't know, I read those and I have those, but I didn't realize that Mike Plug was the artist on Luke Malone. And I want to go back and check those because I'm a huge fan of Plug. Target, which was a basically Death Wish or Dirty Harry right. uh, in the first issue and then becomes a ridiculous superhero after that. And I'll talk about that in a second. Scorpion, which these are crime or adventure. Howard Chaykin. Three issues, only two by Chaykin. And then who even cares who the third one is? It changes it completely. And then the one I wanted to ask you about, because I don't know which category to put it in. Morlock 2000. Mm. What is that? I've read it, but it's just a plant that eats people. And there's some other stuff. I don't know what that book was. Well, I mean, what was Swamp Thing? Isn't that like horror, yeah, horror yeah, monster? Yes, I, monster? I, 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 the origins of swamp creatures. So I guess that makes sense. Yes. It creeped people out. That's what I know. It was the strangest book, I think. Although there's a couple of other contenders. Let me do the superhero books. And there's not that many. I would say that's the minority right. until certain other ones shift to superheroes. Groot was to be their Hulk. It's not really a superhero book. Fleischer wrote the first two issues. Gary Frederick wrote the third. And the art was then done by Alan Weiss with that last issue. It's not really a superhero book, but because they're trying to make it into the Hulk, it has that element to it. Destructor was a flat-out superhero book, one of their only ones, with four issues that's one of my favorites of anything that they did. The first two issues, especially because those are illustrated by Wally Wood. Yeah, Steve Ditko and Wally I, I, Wood. I mean, inked by Wally Wood. Yeah. Whereas the other two issues are by lesser inkers to some degree. But I will say, though, that Larry Lieber did pretty decent in the second half of that series when he started kind of drawing covers. And, you know, he also did the Amazing Spider-Man newspaper strip, or he has been. He's actually a pretty decent penciler. I mean, not, you know, top tier, but he can get you by, you know? He did a lot of the covers. Rich Buckler did some covers. Frank Thorne did some covers. None of them lived up to the early Neil Adams ones. Those were the showstoppers in the line. Tiger Man, three issues, one by Ernie Colan, and then the second two by Ditko. That was fine. Wasn't as good as Destructor. And Weird Suspense, which was their Spider-Man. It was featuring Tarantula. But again, it's written by Fleischer and Tarantula is going around killing people and doing weird things. But he does have a spider powers. Yeah. That Tiger Man was kind of an oddball character because he was like a doctor that, you know, kind of experimented on himself. But the costume, it didn't look very good. I thought it looked kind of silly. Yeah, it looked pretty silly. Tarantula looks pretty silly, too. It's like kind of a superhero-y thing, but he's got a head that looks like a fly, like the 1950s movie. Uh, it's These are all, it's an odd sensibility, and it's clear that superheroes are maybe not what's being... The priority. Yeah, or understood very well. Yeah, you know, right. Again, except if you put them in the hands of an old pro like Ditko, who knew how to do it. Eventually, Scorpion becomes a superhero. Target becomes known as Manstalker. Morlock is killed in the third issue or turned into a regular person and joins with what's called the Midnight Men. So the book totally changes direction. And Phoenix that stops the headlines or the title stops being the Phoenix, but it says Phoenix, the protector. And there's even a line that says on the cover, most exciting superhero of all. 
So these non-superhero books suddenly become superhero books in the last issue. And that's more when Jeff Robin leaves and Larry Lieber basically takes control of everything. And suddenly things shift toward the superhero, more Marvel style of action and such. That was my segue to exactly that. What happens? We see that those 30 issues change, but why? Well, actually, before we go there, let's talk a little bit about some of the black and white magazines. Let's talk oh, I f- I'm sorry. I forgot about yeah, this. Yeah. So the black and white magazines, you know, they had some like Devilina, movie monsters, gothic romance, weird tales of the macabre, thrilling adventure stories. It's funny. Atlas Seaboard did have its fair share of copycats, and that's why Martin Goodman would allow some of this stuff to be made, even though Jeff Rovin would try to innovate to some degree within that restriction. They would copy whatever the competition was doing. So Devilina was clearly a copy of Vampirella, which was from Warren. I remember just reading through some of those, and there's weird themes in these comics. There's a particular story by Gabe Levy and Leo Duranona that has a warped version of the Aquaman Submariner and Little Mermaid plots, but the difference is instead of the princess going out to see humans on a ship and being accepted and starting a grand adventure, she ended up getting gang raped by all the people on the ship and then thrown back into the water. And it was odd because when you look at a lot of those black and white magazine stories, gang rape is like a theme. I found several pages where they just kept pointing to that being part of the story. So that was kind of odd. Weird Tales of the Macabre 1, 1975, was another black and white magazine to try to match the Warren magazines. It has a nice Jeffrey Jones cover, as well as some interior stories. Again, there is one really strange story about a woman who had come back to life, so everyone thought she was dead. Very beautiful. She meets this guy who is kind of a schleppy dude. And then when she explains to him that everyone thinks she's dead and that she loves him, he doesn't come up with an idea to say, oh, maybe I can love her back and we live happily ever after. Instead, he comes up with a really deviated mentality by saying, oh, well, if I murder her, no one will know. So this will be my chance to murder somebody. And so then he like cuts her head off for some very graphic display. And then almost like Tales from the Crypt, she comes back at the end and kills him. Still, really odd imagery, violence toward women type stuff, which seemed to kind of be a theme with some of these. Then also another example of Jeff Rovin having actually some influence over the black and white magazines was he wanted to license Lawrence of Arabia. And he had a Lawrence of Arabia story in one of the magazines. And it was penciled by Frank Thorne. So it's actually pretty cool. In an interview that he had, he mentioned that Martin Goodman didn't want to continue that kind of story for long because he didn't like that there were Arabs in the story. And that's pretty interesting. Gothic Romances was another magazine, and that was made by Atlas in 1974. That was their first magazine. It was intended for women. They had makeup commercials, and they actually have art with Neil Adams and Howard Chaikin. So those are just some notable examples of the black and white magazine line. Did you mention Movie Monsters? The only thing I would say about that is that appears to have been the most successful out of these and that that actually ran four issues and would have been the most derivative in that that's basically Famous Monsters in Filmland, I assume. Whereas Gothic Romance was the only one that only ran one issue and the Mm -hmm. others all had two issues. Yes. So not a lot. Not a lot. That's right. But they have some pretty interesting art and stories by some heavy hitters at the time. You were talking about various examples of the comic books, and here are a couple others. We have The Quest 
for Martin Goodman to copy Marvel to make some Atlas Seaboard comics. And one of them was from 1975, Fright Number 1, featuring the son of Dracula, which starts off with Dracula himself mating with his fourth cousin to produce a son who tries to run away from his father's legacy. The art is Frank Thorne, so you can't really go wrong from that angle. But the comic was a standalone, but it does come out as a copy of Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan's Dracula, which was a great selling title for Marvel Comics at the time. Wolf by Larry Hama and Klaus Janssen. Larry Hama makes quite the splash in the opening sequence to issue two, so I really recommend everyone looks at that. But Larry Hama trained under Wally Wood, and he brought skill in both writing and penciling to those comics. I asked Larry Hama recently why he left Wolf after two issues, and he said there was a death in the family, and so he went into acting and tried to do different things, and he ended up doing M.A.S.H. He was in an episode of M.A.S.H., which is pretty cool, and he did some acting for a while, then he goes back into comics after that, working on things like G.I. Joe. Let's see, Iron Jaw, like you said, written by Michael Fleischer. Interesting in that there was a lot of interesting imagery in that, almost like S&M type imagery, where there's a lot of pain and torture. And there is also references to female gang rape in that when he meets a princess and she, or not a princess, but a female in this kind of weird village. And then she's talking about how, oh, the men in this prison have all had their way with me and Really odd that this becomes like a, I guess, I don't know if it's a 70s thing or if it's an Atlas Seaboard thing, but that comes up a lot. I think it is a product of that specific time period. Warren does it too, but it's really prevalent in, I think, the Marvel black and white books. Oh, I see. So you did notice that too. Yeah, I've noticed that. And it's an interesting theme that it's like, wow, this keeps happening. But I did enjoy seeing some of the breakout artists. So Pat Broderick. I saw he actually worked on a character called the Dark Avenger written by Captain Lou Albano. No, I'm just kidding. By John Albano. And it was a backup story in Phoenix number 3, 1975. And it shows where he's at artistically. And I actually really like the art. It almost kind of had a 90s Jim Valentino look to it, maybe. But I really like the Pat Broderick art from that Dark Avenger comic. The two stories that stood out to me in a lot of ways were, as I said, the Grim Ghost, because I had never seen Ernie Colan's work before, and it was different than anybody else's. Right. And it had horses in it, so that was a plus. But right. he was a highwayman robber who was sentenced to hell, and then Satan was being challenged by somebody, by an upstart. And so he asked the Grim Ghost to go to Earth and fight these villains that were being recruited by the rival Satan. So Grim Ghost was always like an agent of Satan when he's going out there and destroying people, you know, and torturing these villains and things. So there was not a good guy right. in this mix at all. But the art was beautifully done. And really, that was the story where Fleischer, it made sense what he was doing it didn't make sense in some of the others but with that one it was a good matchup and i enjoyed those issues the right. other story that i would just want to mention if you have to read anything of atlas in the entire run say in the magazine section the <laughs> thrilling adventures number two which was yeah. i think their master issue of anything yeah. that's a great issue and that yeah. alex toth story a job well done is so innovative in its art in its panels and the story it's telling and it's so ruthless and cold and horrible in its conclusion 
It's about a father who wants to get vengeance for his son, but it's like, job well done, because he slaughtered everybody over the preceding five pages or so. This was the 70s coming off of Death Wish and Dirty Harry and that line of vengeance films. Yeah. And so it was some cold stuff. Yeah, I agree. I like that stuff. I like the Phoenix series. You know, we mentioned that a little bit earlier. The first two issues, the origin story, is a lot of fun because, like you said, it's not a superhero story. Although he does have superpowers, it's more of a science fiction story, a science fiction genre, I think, where a human astronaut meets with ancient aliens and does adopt their technology, almost like an Iron Man outfit or Iron Man suit. And that's how he has his abilities. It's through technology. And it brings together the talents of Sal Amendola and Gabriel Levy. There was a fun two-page spread in the second issue that brings in the theme of Moses and the Egyptians as Phoenix parts the ocean, allowing safe passage of innocent bystanders from the ancient aliens that were attacking the Earth. But by issue four, though, like you mentioned, Martin Goodman wanted the titles to look more Marvel-like, and suddenly the art is done by Rick Estrada in issue four, and it has that bouncy, almost John Romita, Jack Kirby kind of look to it. That one was edited by Stan's brother, Larry Lieber, and the costume was totally changed. It was more of a full face mask, almost like a Spider-Man or a Captain America type of costume. It was interesting to see such a startling transformation. I like the sci-fi approach for the first two issues over the for the first few issues rather than the final almost more marvel look-alike issue then i also like planet of the vampires i actually liked all three issues of that it carried the same level of writing larry hammer wrote the first issue and then john albano wrote issues two and three and the art was pretty level all the way through pat broderick and russ heath there was a preview for issue four at the very end of issue three. And that's where it had art by Larry Lieber. And it shows that two-page spread of a preview of four. It shows the two guys, the white guy and the black guy, that were kind of fighting the vampires who had lost their mates. And they're surrounded by four guys that look like either Calabac or Ulick or whoever, Kirby-type monsters. And it was drawn in a very Kirby style, that preview. So you can tell that issue four would have completely gone full Kirby lookalike with Larry Lieber doing the art. It never happened. I would have read it out of just seeing that transformation, but I actually really liked Planet of the Vampires 1 through 3. So when Robin resigned and artists were leaving, Larry Lieber became the editor of all the books. Atlas Comics didn't last, Jim. And Lieber knew what he was doing, but I think it was too late. And Goodman was telling him, you just copy what Marvel is doing, and that wasn't going to work. They right. brought in, Gary, is it Friedrich or Frederick? Yeah. Yeah, Friedrich, I thought, yeah. Yeah, and he had Mike Friedrich writing some of it, too, and they brought in a lot of Marvel writers there at the end, but they lost what was interesting about the books. And there were also distribution problems. They right. weren't getting out there. You couldn't find the books anymore. It was a total failure. That's right. Basically, what happened was, and Robert Bierbaum, actually, who we had on as a guest recently, he was interviewed for this, and he had mentioned, because he was really up close with distribution and comic book shops at the time, he said that Goodman just flooded the market with this glut of comics, and that messed with the distributors. They were not sure what to do with all this product, and so it was almost easier not to deal with any of it or just use a little bit of it. So most of them didn't even ship to any shops or newsstands. They just kind of stayed in a warehouse somewhere. 
you know, with Goodman not liking Jeff Rovin's choices, he didn't like Howard Chaikin's art, which I love Howard Chaikin's art. He didn't like Cologne's art, which you're a big fan of. So Rovin leaving, Larry Lieber doing his thing. He just wanted to copy Marvel. That's all Goodman wanted to do. And that wasn't really a viable business plan. Basically, Goodman decides that there's no money coming in. It was a bit of a failed experiment. And he dissolved the company in 1975. And Chip Goodman went off to publishing magazines like Swank with GCR Publishing until he died in 1996. Why are we talking about it today? If it was a total failure, they only produced, we said two years, but basically comics came out for 12 months or so. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a one-year failure. So why is it interesting? Did it have any impact on comics at the time or later on? And I think the answer is yes. Why is that? Well, it's interesting from a Martin Goodman perspective in that it was Goodman's last stand against an industry that was outgrowing him. And he had his temper tantrum and he had to kind of do one last thing before leaving the industry that he had helped create but had outgrown him as part of that machinery. But there were actually positive effects from the company. It left the industry with better working conditions since Carmine Infantino also started returning original art and increasing pay to keep artists from moving over to Atlas. So there was a more of a creator-friendly environment that started to break into the industry, and that's important because then that goes into return of original art, that goes into the whole discussion of creators owning rights to their own stuff. That sets up a lot of that mentality in the 80s of creators earning a percentage of the profits that they make for the corporations. Also, Jim, you're going to talk a little more about this, but there are actually two characters generated within Atlas that actually became fixtures over at Marvel. Tell us about that. Well, one thing before that, which is that Atlas made these promises, but they weren't always kept in that I've read stories of artists going in, Walt Simonson specifically, going to pick up original art and them saying, oh, it was stolen. We don't have mm, it. Mm. So that didn't always actually happen, but right. it was the promise of it or the threat of it. And certainly out of creator controlled ownership of these characters, most of these characters that didn't really come into play because they didn't last long enough to have any value, except for the two that I'm going to talk about. One is uh, Demon Hunter, which Rich Buckler says he created. David Anthony Kraft says they co-created it. There's some issue about actual ownership in that context, although clearly Buckler was the person that carried it over, and he was very invested in that character initially. So that became Devil Slayer over in Marvel Comics in 1977. And Buckler actually did very little with that. It was later taken over by artists like Don Perlin and Ed Hannigan. But it had a long life at Marvel. Buckler also brought it over to his own magazine, Galaxia, in 1980 and renamed the character Bloodwing. So there's a mm. long history of That's that. That's pretty cool. The other character was Chaikin's Scorpion, who became Dominic Fortune over at Marvel. The concept initially was that you had this 1930s crime fighter who had been around forever and had been a Western gunfighter and had been different characters and changed his identity. So it wasn't too jarring to see in the third issue that he was now a modern-day superhero. That kind of could make sense to some degree, but without right. Shaken, it was just it wasn't worth looking at. 
But when he brought the character over to Marvel, he was appearing in the black and white magazines. It was some really good stuff. And yeah. Taken was really evolving into an interesting artist at that point. And I love those, the Dominic Fortune. Later, it got picked up by other lesser creators and the character's a mess. But what Shaken was doing with it was pretty interesting. Right. Well, yeah, of course, it's his creation and his vision. So it would definitely be more interesting. That's what I know about Atlas. Anything yeah, else? there you go. There you go. One thing I want to say is David Anthony Kraft did have some creation in the Demon Hunter Devil Slayer character. And the comic that he came in Marvel was Marvel Spotlight 33 for anyone interested. Also, for anyone interested in following or looking at Dominic Fortune's premiere in the Marvel Universe, that would be Marvel Preview 2, 1975. So anyone who wants to buy those comics off eBay and check them out, those would be the ones to get. Okay. Do we have time to do a rant slash Sure. Let's... uh. Yeah, let's. Uh, we got a few minutes. Let's talk about Doom Patrol. There have been two episodes. We won't spoil anything, but I'm really enjoying the Doom Patrol. I haven't read the newer Doom Patrol. I've read the old ones with Arnold Drake. I love that series. I love the offbeat nature of the characters, and I think they're implemented really well in this new show. What do you think, Jim? So you haven't read the Grant Morrison stuff? Correct. Okay, we're going to take a pause now, and you go read that, and then we can come back. No, 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 I don't care. Well, spoil it for me. Go ahead. I don't care. (laughs) No, no, it's just, they are so good. And this is Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, to the point that in the second issue, he actually, they say, well, who would be watching this show? And they say, the narrator says, well, Grant Morrison fans are the only ones that are going to care about this. What's interesting about this is historical with the Doom Patrol, and I love this. We all know Doom Patrol as the other book with the wheelchair guy that came out at the exact same time as the X-Men. Yeah, And there's been a fight forever between those two basically coming out at the same time and who derived what from who. And that's a historic moment in comics history. Yes, in uh, 1963. The exact same thing is happening now because... Doom Patrol and Umbrella Academy are both on television at the same time and are doing the exact same postmodern Baroque period comic book, like meta narrative that's super self-aware and self-reflexive and everything. And I've gotten like three people that have contacted me and said, hey, are you watching Umbrella Academy? And all I can think is everybody watching one is going to look at the other and say, oh, but that's the same story. And it is because this is a Doom Patrol, not of Arnold Drake, but of Grant Morrison. Umbrella Academy. Did you ever read that, Alex? No. That was written and created by Gerard Way who was basically this generation's Grant Morrison. He went on to write Doom Patrol for DC recently. You've got Umbrella Academy fighting its way in ratings with Doom Patrol. Yeah. So there's that. Yeah, that is cool. That is an interesting parallel. And what I was surprised, and I'm not going to break any details about it, but I really enjoyed the portrayal of Cyborg. I liked it a lot more than I expected. And not to go into the story, but I almost feel like it's better than what I saw in the Justice League movie and the relationship with his father and all that stuff. But it's fun. I don't know. I'm enjoying it. The other thing that I would say is this is probably 
a sign of the last phase or the end of the superhero cycle on television to some degree. It's going to stretch out for a little bit. But the reason I say that is in film theory, especially one theorist, Thomas Schott, talks about the four phases of genre. And the last phase is the Baroque phase. And that's where Westerns or whatever genre he's talking about become self-reflexive, super aware of its own genre conventions, and it becomes almost a parody of the genre. That's what's happening with both Umbrella Academy and with this, whereas the previous cycle was refinement under the Netflix shows, Daredevil and all of those. And that was really interesting. But now we're getting a different level of postmodern playfulness that's perfect for Gerard Way and for Grant Morrison fans. Signs of a change over. Yeah, that's interesting. Deadpool is also plays on that self-parody also. That when I saw that movie, I thought, I think this is going to, it might signal the end of a genre in a sense. I think that with Netflix letting go of the Marvel shows, maybe it is a sign of less superhero shows on TV. We'll see. Or at least the final cycle of it. That could play out for a while, but in a quest to make it more interesting, they're turning to this self-reflexive nature of it. And, I mean, you have the narrator in Doom Patrol talking about the super cool credit sequence and this and that. I mean, it's yeah, and, and actually right. invoking the writers like Grant Morrison. So it's, again, self-aware of itself. Have you seen Deadpool 2? No. It's totally... He does that to, like, the millionth degree... Everything he does, it's like, okay, this is that part of the movie where we do this, you know, and although that's very Deadpool, it is a sign of this, what you're talking about, like this self-deconstructive approach to a superhero show. Which I find really interesting is just once you deconstruct it, once you make it self-reflexive, it's hard to go back and do the classic version until you get into a nostalgic one and you start doing, which means look for Astro City as a property a year from now. I would love that. Yeah, well, we'll see, right? Because they're doing this phase four with the Marvel movies. So we'll see what they do. You know, Captain Marvel's coming out soon. The second Infinity War movie. They're going to try to go more cosmic, maybe a little more sci-fi. Maybe it'll be less superhero and more sci-fi. So we'll see what happens. Yep. Well, this has been another fun episode of the Comic Book Historians podcast. This is Alex and Jim signing out. Have an awesome couple of weeks, and we'll see you next time. Enjoy the Oscars tonight. (laughs) 